Uncommon Commons is a horror anthology podcast written by George Plank and Alex Vitale. Content warnings can be found in the episode description. Today's episode is St. Groshov, written by Alex Vitale. Someone looks down and out, and I'm pretty sure I didn't cause it this time. What's the matter, buddy? Oh, hey, Jane. Sorry, did you say something? I asked, what's up? Did one of your feline pupils run off with your lesson plans again? No. No, not this time. Besides, Francis brought them back last time. Here, read this. You got the mail already? Just read it. Ugh. Dear Mr. Doe, this letter is served upon due to the operation of a school without a teaching license. There's more. And the dissemination of misinformation to impressionable feline youth. If you do not cease the aforementioned activities, you will be forcibly ejected from reality. Signed, A.G. Esquire. How are these poor little cats going to learn about metaphysics now? Something tells me that they already know about that. Yeah, maybe, but they don't know how to properly cite their sources. How will they ever survive without knowing essential information like that? Why don't you just keep teaching and see what happens? Couldn't hurt. You know, actually, I think it could. Well, what if you try a different kind of teaching? One that doesn't require any kind of license or background check. Like what? Sunday school? We have no way of discerning the day of the week. It would be more like... some... Day school. There's a spirit. You mean the Holy Spirit? No, I do not. Anyway, you go round up the kids, I mean cats, and I'll go check my mailbox for... Never mind. You already have it, apparently. Can I serve you a cease and desist? Nope. Go on. Read it over and see if it's appropriate educational material for our students. I hadn't wanted to accompany him at first, you know. But that's just how things were with O'Sullivan. You got roped into his world, whether you wanted to or not, and trust me, it was usually or not. Don't get me wrong, he was a great guy. One of the brightest men you'd ever meet. But he's a bit cracked. Was, I guess. It was December 26th, 1963. I had just graduated and was about to begin my postgraduate work at Columbia when Dr. O'Sullivan had approached me. We'd worked closely together during my undergrad studies, and I think he knew how tired I was of research. Don't get me wrong, I love doing research. Hell, I had devoted my whole life to it. But after four years of late nights in the library, poring over every detail about Dacius of Dorosterum ever written, you start to fade a bit. Dickie, Dr. O'Sullivan, saw the bags under my eyes, saw the slump in my shoulders whenever I headed out of the history department, and I think he took pity on me. Maybe he thought an adventure is just what I needed to put that spark of curiosity back into my brain. Maybe that's what I thought, too. That night, he invited me out to dinner with him and his wife. Small talk faded quickly, as it always did with Dickie, into the excited ramblings of a scholar with far too much time on his hands. It took barely half a glass of wine to coax his true intentions out of him, and by the time the digestives had been served, he had laid bare his whole plan. There was a monastery, he told me, just outside of Sebesh in Romania. Locals had a tendency to stay away, 
and while Dicky did not have all of the information, for his Romanian, despite specializing in the medieval history of the nation, left much to be desired, they spoke of some hidden horror within its crumbling walls. There was also, word suggested, a library of manuscripts that had remained untouched for centuries. He was absolutely smitten with the idea of lost lore from the Middle Ages, although Lorraine and I were far more dubious. Yet it was hard not to be enchanted by his enthusiasm as he babbled on about his upcoming trip. Before long, I was nodding along with him, and the next week we were on the red eye to Romania. It is only now, nearly ten years after that fateful trip, that I wonder if he only invited me because he needed a translator. Our inn at Sebesh was rustic, to put it nicely, but by the time we got in we were so tired that we hardly noticed. To no one's surprise, least of all my own, getting to Sebesh was not easy. My own temper was hanging on by a thread by the time my head hit the pillow, and I owed it to Dickie's endless optimism that neither of us had strangled the other. The following morning we'd awoken early, before even the sunrise, and our boots hit the mud in the street outside with renewed excitement for our work. The excitement, shockingly enough, did not wane as we trudged outward towards the hidden monastery. Dickie's information was not entirely as truthful as we had hoped, and the monastery turned out to be much farther from town than we'd initially anticipated. We were cold and exhausted by the time we had crested the hill overlooking the derelict place, but to us this rotting corpse of a once-vibrant building was more inviting than the Ritz. Dickie took off down the hill before I could even think to move. He slipped and rolled into the mud on his way down, but he didn't care. He picked himself up and kept on moving. It was dangerous work, I won't deny that. No one had been in this building for God knew how long. The locals avoided this place like the plague, and if the Latin etched into the heavy front doors was any indicator, it had been abandoned long before the fall of the Holy Roman Empire. The inscription warned of some vague horror, told the reader that if they were to enter they'd be turning their backs on God. It called to one's mind the image of Dante and Virgil, faced at the gates of hell with the simple sign of abandoned hope, all ye who enter here. Dicky, who had never been particularly close to the Lord in the first place, surveyed the perimeter until he found an easily accessible entrance. If you've ever been in a monastery before, then you'll have the vague idea of how they're generally supposed to be laid out. Logically, the way Dickie and I entered the building should have opened directly into the cloisters. This was not the case. We crossed a precariously crumbled-in hall into what appeared to be a small, secluded garden. This in and of itself was not particularly odd, as nearly all monasteries had them, but it was the contents that struck us as out of the ordinary. Plants sprung up from the dilapidated garden boxes peppering the small courtyard. Despite it being the dead of winter, with snow threatening on the horizon, they grew strong and seemed to the untrained eye to be perfectly healthy. As far as either of us knew, none of the locals were tending the monastery, but the scene before us suggested a much different truth. The fleeting, foolish thought that perhaps the plants had some power of the Lord imbued into them crossed my mind. Now I wonder. Dickie stooped to inspect one of the plants closest to us, though neither he nor I could identify it. It was unlike anything either of us had seen before, with a thick, purplish, powdery stalk and spindly needle-like leaves. I hurriedly made a note of them in my journal, but before I could finish the drawing, Dickie had abandoned the garden and moved on. He was never one for botany, and often mocked our university's horticulture club, so I cannot say I was surprised. I stashed my journal and followed him through the rest of the building. Neither of us knew where we were going. Unlike in the tourist traps of Western Europe, this abbey had no brochure map. I don't know for how long Dickie and I stumbled around with our torches in hand, 
but we entered and exited many a room without incident. One had held a gorgeous tapestry, and it had caught my eye for several minutes before I had the idea to sketch it. A farmer, thick-bearded, standing on a hill over a village with two great violet clouds on the horizon. At the time I had not known what it depicted, but I suppose hindsight is always clearer. I believe I still have the sketch I did of it, somewhere around this damned office. Say, Doc, I began some time later. Judging by my watch, we'd been in the monastery for about two hours, and we'd barely exchanged more than a few curious gasps. Did the locals tell you what they call this place? No, he'd responded over his shoulder, shining a light down a set of stone steps. They didn't even seem to know what order had lived here. I suppose that information fades over time. Sure, if you never bothered to investigate. Dickie descended the stairs carefully enough, though with no great amount of reservation. I followed a little more cautiously, mostly concerned about slipping and cracking my skull open, or worse, damaging the building. Dickie seemed to take my caution as fear, though. "'You suppose that hidden horror is hiding in the basement?' he quipped. I smiled dully at him. That wasn't worth a retort. "'Maybe we'll find some information on the monks who lived here. There must be something useful.' Must was a strong term, but it seemed to placate Dickie as he hummed agreeably. The stairs went down for much longer than they felt they should have, and we made several winding turns before we reached the bottom. Our torches illuminated a dark wooden door, flickering lights glinting off its ancient handle. As always, it was Dickie who made the first move. He pushed gently on it, and with a great heaving groan, it swung inward. "'Good God!' breathed Dickie. The library before us was a more wondrous sight than we could have dreamed. It was dark, our lights barely filling half of the room, and it smelled heavily of dust and decay. All the same, tears pricked at the corners of my eyes as though I was looking upon my firstborn child. Rows of shelves stretched far back into the darkness, so many that I could not count them from the doorway. Eagerly I shone my light at the closest, where it reflected dimly back at me off of some dust-caked chains and my breath hitched. Dozens of manuscripts filled every shelf. Some lay open on nearby tables, bearing their illuminations to a long, dead audience. The chains which I had first seen, I then realized, connected each book to its shelf. Long had I dreamt of such a discovery, but never in my short life had I thought I would ever actually find one. Dr. O'Sullivan swept into the room like a specter. His footfalls were so soft and quick that I had hardly realized he moved from my side. His fingers brushed dust off the nearest open book as gently as he could, and in the thick silence that filled the room I could hear little exclamations of wonder pass his lips. I nearly reprimanded him, nearly told him we had better go back and get gloves to handle such precious materials, but I couldn't speak. Walking as though I was stepping over someone's grave, as though my mere presence may bring the whole place crashing down, I stepped to his side to look over his shoulder. "'It's Latin,' he told me in a hushed tone. His Latin was much better than mine, and so I waited with bated breath, as he scanned the page. It's a history of the monastery, I think, but it's stained. Look. Dickie ran his fingers over the page, collecting what seemed to be dust on his fingertips. Looking more closely in the dim light of his torch, I saw it was a bluish-purple film, powdery in texture. Where his fingers had run over the manuscript, the page was clear, save for a periwinkle tarnish on the gold leaf. He brought his finger to his mouth and stuck his tongue out. Don't lick it! I slapped his hand away. He only shrugged and laughed. 
He lowered his hand, wiping the dust onto his pant leg. There's some damage to the pages. I can't quite discern the script. Whoever lived here, I think they called themselves the Order of St. Groshov? Never heard of him. They say what he did? He read on, delicately turning the pages. He scowled down at the book, as he often did when he was concentrating. A lot of this is damaged by that dust or mold or whatever it is. I, I think he killed people? How saintly. In the name of God, you punk. It says people of the village were persecuted for their piety by invaders, and Groshov poisoned them? I think I don't recognize some of these words. He bent his head further over the manuscript, wiping away more of the residue. I think they're describing some sort of battle, and Groshov caused snow to rain down upon them? No, that can't be right. I, I can't make out these words. He stepped back, frowning. To this day, I wonder what was going through his head then, but before I had ever the chance to ask, he whirled around toward the nearest bookshelf. He scanned over the manuscripts and took the biggest one from the shelf, and, stepping over its connecting chain, set it down on the table. The spine practically creaked as it settled, and as the pages fanned open, a massive plume of that blue-purple powder erupted forth. I scrambled backward, both startled and disgusted, but Dickie was caught in the torrent. I heard him suck in a sharp gasp and dissolve into hacking, sputtering coughs. The dust clung cloying in the air, and before long Dickie's outline was indistinguishable from the shimmering cloud of sickly sweet powder that had enveloped him. I pressed my nose and mouth into the inside of my elbow, dropping my torch in the process. It clattered loudly to the stone floor, casting the entire scene in terrific light. Dickie's shadow danced wildly across the bookshelves as he staggered against the table. His cough sounded ragged, wet, and dry at the same time. Screwing my eyes shut, I flailed my free hand out towards him to pull him back, down, any way away from that cloud of glimmering dust. It was to no avail, though. I felt Dickie's now clammy hand slap my own away and heard him stumble against the shelves. He wheezed violently, and something dark and viscous spattered on the floor at his feet. He sank to his knees as I stood frozen in terror, peeking out from barely open eyes. Below the cloud of dust I could see him better. His hands clawed desperately at his throat, leaving long red lines in his rapidly paling skin. His eyes bulged and his nose poured like a faucet, bubbling out froth and tears in unison. A thin, almost black trail of liquid dribbled from his mouth which had been stained a vibrant shade of blue-purple. Dickie cast his eyes upon me and reached out a hand. Whether it was for the door or for me, I do not know, because I did not stop to look back. I do not know what had become of St. Groshov since I had been there, a decade ago now. I never stopped running until I reached Sebesh, and I did not stop to answer the innkeeper's questions as I ran upstairs to scrub the faint blue-purple stains off of my hands and face. I did not stop either as I gathered my things and fled to the train station. The flight home felt longer than any trip could feel, and even so I had never felt as though I had put enough distance between myself and that horrid place. I did not answer calls from Lorraine or from the university, and it was only when the police came asking for me that I forced myself to talk to anyone. I was accused of murder, of course, but they could not pin anything on me. From then on I kept to myself nursing a cough that to this day I have not gotten rid of. I have tried to forget my prior life, tried to cover it up with a writing career and a new name. I have tried to forget Romania and St. Groshov. I have tried to forget that monstrous, sublime library in the deep basement of that monastery, where my friend is still curled. I have tried to forget Dr. Richard O'Sullivan. 
but the inside of my eyelids is stained blue-purple with his silhouette. Huh, I don't feel very educated. Then you haven't opened your heart to the words. Besides, it's not for you, it's for our students. Where are they? Oh, they're not coming. What? Why? Doreen says she's agnostic. Uncommon Commons is a podcast. It was written and recorded by George Plank and Alex Vitale. Our logo was designed by Sam Vitale, and our theme song was written by Charles Adam Robinson. Special thanks to our patrons, including Noel Son, who contributed at the $5 level. For $1 a month, get access to all of our bonus content, including the Common Area and our ongoing actual play podcast, Need to Escape. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Stay. And remember, nothing is real.